Today on Ag News Daily. We also talk quite a bit about the oil and ethanol market, and we talk a lot about the U.S. dollar, but really any futures market we are trying to develop content for on the mobile app. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's our final Ag News Daily episode of 2020. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, it feels quite weird saying that it's our final episode of 2020. (laughs) That's true. I guess I didn't think about it like that, but you're right. It is our final episode of 2020. We're taking a few days off here for the holidays and New Year's Eve and all that fun stuff. And quite frankly, we need a little break, Ashton. I think so. I think everybody needs a break and hopefully they're getting one since we have back-to-back holidays coming up, but I am really just ready for 2020 to be over. I feel like we've been talking about it being over since it began, so I'm glad that it's finally here. I am as well. And speaking of 2020, I got some news wrong yesterday, Ashton. You actually were correct when we were talking about the new COVID package that Congress was voting on. You are correct. We hadn't seen an official vote as of yet. We actually saw that end up happening yesterday afternoon. So I was wrong. I want to apologize. Ashton, you are absolutely correct. There had not been a deal made as of yet, but they did pass it yesterday evening and sent it to President Trump for his signature. So we now officially have a COVID-19 relief package. Well, maybe that was just you speaking it into existence then. That's it. That was what it is. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, This document, if anybody wants to read it, is 5,593 pages long. I will be avoiding reading that bill, but it is available for public uh, reading if anybody needs a little light reading during their holiday season. I don't know that I would call that light reading. (laughs) That is Uh, a lot. I don't think so either, but... You know, if you're interested in it, it is public. Well, Delaney, we had a listener reach out to us talking about some new FSA loan stuff. And I had reached out to the USDA hoping to get somebody on the podcast, but with the holidays coming up, we weren't able to do so. But I did speak with a USDA spokesperson, and this is what they had to say about the new FSA loans. In case anybody out there has been having some trouble with the new requirements or anything like that, just wanted to to give a little bit of clarification to our listeners. Wait, Ashton, I'm going to pause you there. Just for clarity purposes, add a little context. What did our listener ask or say when they reached out to us before you go into the specifics? So the listener had reached out, um, kind of requesting us, I guess, to dig into some information about new FSA loan funding, because this listener had applied for a loan for land to grow their operation, and they were denied for this loan. And they said that their denial letter said that as of November 6, 2020, Washington had passed new requirements stating that all FSA loan repayment must be made with 100% farm income and that off-farm income cannot be used for farm loan payment. 
And it sounds like, and from, from, from that message and from when I talked to this USDA spokesperson, it sounds like a lot of folks were confused on this new verbiage. And so I just wanted to give some clarification to those who were denied and what they can do moving forward. And those who might be in the process of going through that loan stuff or loan applications and kind of, like I keep saying, give some clarification. So in November 2020, FSA published written guidance that, among other items, clarified existing guidance regarding applicant eligibility determinations for farm loans. Specifically, FSA clarified guidance to aid loan staff in making determinations to ensure applicants' quality as a farm-sized farm, family-sized farm in accordance with federal regulations. And all recipients of FSA farm loans are required to be family-sized farms, and one component in making that formal determination requires an analysis of the applicant's farm business plan and the farm income potential. Prior to issuance of the revised guidance, some loan staff interpreted the policy that to qualify for a direct farm ownership loan, an applicant's gross farm income needed to be twice the amount of the projected real estate annual installment. FSA did recognize that the wording in the handbook guidance was a point of confusion that could have been interpreted in a way that was only or overly restrictive. The new November 2020 amendment was issued to clarify that gross farm income is not required to be twice the real estate installment amount, but that projecting gross farm income at least equal to the annual installments for debt associated with the real estate could be acceptable. This minor change enables applicants to be more easily qualified for a direct farm ownership loan and is consistent with federal regulation requirements regarding family-sized farms. And they go on to just kind of explain the, let me pick that up. Do they, Ashton, do they give any clarity? Oh, wow. My voice is cracking. Do they give any clarity as to what they quantify as a family-sized farm? They don't necessarily say how big a family-sized farm or how, how big they recognize a family sized farm. Uh, I think that's something that you might have to talk with your USDA service center, your local USDA service center about, but they do say that producers can visit farmers.gov fund for the most up-to-date info on farm loans. And for one-on-one assistance, producers should contact their local USDA service center. So like I said, it sounds like a lot of people were kind of confused and the FSA recognized that. So if you do have any questions, definitely reach out to those resources. Yeah, absolutely. Because it sounds like USDA was confused. Their workers were confused. So maybe our listener was rejected from a loan and maybe she shouldn't have been. So yeah, and I think that they are kind of going through and maybe talking to those individuals on what they can do more because we we talked about that, but there are specific deadlines to apply for appeal options and whatnot. So get in contact with those local USDA service providers. Well, I want to switch tracks here just a little bit, Ashton. We're still talking about a government entity, this time talking about the EP argument or a discussion we've had quite a bit on the podcast looking at dicamba lawsuits we've now seen another group of environmental and farm groups filed 
a lawsuit challenging the EPA's latest round of dicamba herbicide registrations. This lawsuit was filed by the same groups whose lawsuit against the 2018 registration ended in federal court, vacating those three dicamba registrations on June 3rd of this year. The plaintiffs now have followed through with a five-page filing in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco. And this new dicamba lawsuit basically echoes what happened in the previous lawsuit that vacated those three registrations and argued that the older lawsuit, in the older lawsuit, the plaintiffs argue that the EPA broke its governing law, which is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which it granted uncon- when it granted unconditional five-year registrations for these three dicamba herbicides. They also say that they failed to prove the new registrations pose, quote, no unreasonable adverse effects on the environment. And once again, the lawsuit challenges and alleges that the EPA violated the Endangered Species Act by not consulting with the fe- with the required federal agencies to ensure the new registrations wouldn't harm any endangered species or critical habitats. So this new lawsuit also challenges sudden decisions to disallow states, specific states' use of this uh, under the special local need label. And so ultimately, this new lawsuit asks the Ninth Circuit Court to vacate the 2020 dicamba registrations and, quote, craft equitable relief to prohibit any continued use of existing already sold or pre-sold pesticide products. So we will continue to watch this story. It sounds like the way I understand it, like I said, it's the exact same groups that filed this lawsuit back in 2018, same groups that did it again. It sounds like to me they're basically trying to throw something at the wall and see what sticks to try and get this dicamba product, these dicamba products overturned and banned again. Delaney, I also saw that, so I'm glad that we're on the same brainwave today because I just think that this stuff is so interesting because they keep going back and forth, I feel like, so much with this. I don't know if it's ever something that's going to really end. No, I don't know either. I mean, I think at some point there'll be some sort of finality to it, but I don't know when that'll be. Well, Delaney, I just have one other piece of news that I wanted to share today, and it's a new propane farm incentive program. The program is sponsored by the Propane Education and Research Council, and the Incentive program is a research program that provides a financial incentive up to $5,000 towards the purchase of a new propane-powered farm equipment. In exchange, participants agree to share real-world performance data with the Propane Education and Research Council. Qualifying equipment includes propane-powered industrial engines, generators, water heating systems, poultry, swine, and greenhouse heating systems, flame weed control, agronomic heat treating, hang on, let me pick that up, and agronomic heat treating. Applying is supposed to be pretty easy on the propane.com website. So folks, if you're interested in giving some data to PERC and possibly being eligible for a new piece of propane equipment, definitely go check out their website. 
All right. Well, Ashton, I tell you what, I have just one other serious piece of news and I've got a little Christmas fun facts for us for today. But my serious piece of news here is looking at Chinese demand. We saw Kafka, China's one of China's largest state owned food processing companies, put out some recent estimates and announcements about what they think their demand will total up to be here in the 2020-2021 marketing year for soybean purchases. They said that due to the fact that they are ramping up their hog herd pretty quickly, as we've seen, and also due to the fact that they're making good on their phase one Chinese purchases, they are anticipating to see the country uh, import 100 million tons of soybeans for this marketing year alone. U.S. exports, more specifically to China, more than doubled from years prior, and we are estimating that those will be at about 36 million tons shipped to China. They also noted that not only are they needing more soybeans, they are pushing the pace, pushing the envelope when it comes to soy crushing abilities in the country domestically. They're saying for the year of 2020, Soy crushing rose to 92.6 million tons, up from 80.3 million tons the year prior. And they are also anticipating a 6% year-over-year jump for continued growth moving forward. Or I should say continued demand moving forward, a 6% jump. So we're watching that push very heavily on futures. We still saw futures continue their upward momentum into today. Ashton, what do you say? Should we talk markets first or should I share my fun Christmas facts first? I am really looking forward to these Christmas facts because your Thanksgiving ones were pretty great. So I'm ready (laughs) to hear these. Okay, let's talk about them really quickly before we talk markets. I think I've shared some of these before. It's hard to find new ones, I'm not going to lie, year over year. But I found some specifically here about candy, because many folks will be chowing down on some Christmas candy at their holiday celebrations this year. Candy canes and caramel corn and chocolate-covered cherries all have one thing in common. They're made of sugar, more specifically sugar cane and sugar beets, which we grow a lot of sugar beets here in the United States. More than 2 billion, with a B, candy canes are sold between the month of November and December. And the first historical reference in America to the candy cane dates back to what year, Ashton? Do you want to guess for us? Um, uh, Let's go 1912. I don't know. Okay. Well, you're pretty close. You're only like a century off. The first candy cane dates back to 1847 when a German immigrant from Wooster, Ohio, decorated his Christmas tree with candy canes. So there'll be about 89% of people chowing down on candy at their hello at their holiday celebrations this year. Maybe a little bit less if you're not having a big festivity this year due to COVID, but there'll be candy consumed all over. And of course, Ashton, the most important thing here is that all forms of food, well, I shouldn't say all, but most forms of food come from agriculture. You know, it's it's hard to say 100% now because we do have some lab-grown food, if that's what you want to call it. But most of our food that we'll be chowing down on this Christmas season will be thanks to agriculture. Absolutely, Delaney. Well, I'm all out of news for today and I'm relishing in these Christmas facts. So what do you say we get over to the markets? 
Let's do it. And everybody can enjoy a little candy cane snack while they're listening to the rest of today's podcast. But kicking things off here first in the corn markets. March closed up three and a half cents today to close at 443 and a half. The D's down uh, just a quarter of a cent to close at 419 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the January contract up four today to close at 1247 and a quarter. The March up two and a half to close at 1250. In the Chicago wheat pits, the March contract up five and three quarters cents to close at 617 the december up two and three quarters to close at 618 and a half hopping over into the livestock pits a little weakness today as the february live cattle contract shed a dollar 20 to close at 113.45 the april down a dollar 05 to close at 117.65 in feeders the january contract shedding 72 and a half cents today to close at 139.90 the march down a dollar 25 to close at 141.87 lean hogs a little higher today as the february contract closed at 66.02 up 10 cents the april Added two pennies to close at 70.02 and rounding on our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. January up 75 today to close at 16.38. The February up 75 as well to close at 17.20. Now, Ashton, that we're finished with the markets, we're going to be doing things a little different for today's Tech Tuesday. I'm basically just going to be talking for the next 15 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. You had a great idea, Ashton, for today's Tech Tuesday interview. A lot of companies, it seems like, were also celebrating the holiday season a little bit early. So we uh, were scrambling to find a last minute Tech Tuesday episode. And you said, why not talk about your new Trader PhD mobile app? I certainly did, Delaney, and I'm pretty excited to talk about it because I have the app on my phone and I kind of got a little bit of a test drive when you guys were coming out with this at Trader. So I'm pretty excited for our listeners to be able to get to hear your experience with creating this app. And I am too, because I know it's something that you have been working on for quite some time. Yeah, I certainly have. I certainly have, Ashton. So I guess my first question is, and you've talked a little bit about Trader on the podcast before, for, but for those who don't exactly know what Trader is, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you guys do? Absolutely, Ashton. This is a little weird to be in the hot seat, but uh, Trader PhD is an ag marketing company. I joined the company at the end of April of 2020. So just, you know, right before everything shut down for COVID, it was good timing, but our founder, Chad Toyne, reached out to me and, you know, knew I had a background in markets and agriculture and asked if I would be interested in joining his company, which was, again, a small ag marketing company in West Des Moines that honestly I'd never heard of. Asked if I would join the company as their chief marketing officer to help them develop all of their communications, but more specifically this mobile app, which we'll get to here in just a minute. But Chad, our founder, started the company back in about 2012, originally and officially in 2015. So he's been working in the trading scene for about 30 years and has a passion for the numbers side of things. You know, he grew up on a farm as well um, in Coon Rapids, Iowa, I believe. And Liked the production side, but definitely liked the numbers side more. And I can relate to that. I didn't like the numbers side, but I didn't really like the production side either. I think I liked the people side of farming. But Chad decided to start this company back in 2012 to serve as an ag advisory service for folks. So, you know, we talked to a lot of brokers. We talked to a lot of analysts on the podcast. We do basically what they do. We just don't trade for 
our customers. So we still do a lot of technical analysis, a lot of commentary analysis. I'm sure folks have noticed that my market skills have gotten a little bit better since I started working there, Ashton. I've got a little more insight into what the markets are doing. And honestly, that's just been because I've learned from Chad and from what he follows and how he does things. But like I said, hired back in April, we've launched this mobile app. It's really exciting. And it's a really cool tool, I think, for farmers to be able to use. Well, that being said, Delaney, how about you tell us a little bit about the app? There's a lot of cool features, but what was the app originally designed to do? Yep, that's a great question, Ashton. So before the mobile app launched, our service, which is basically just a subscription service, was sent to our subscribers via text messages and cell phones broadcasts. We call them broadcasts, but they're basically four minute long audio clips, you know, maybe one to two to three times a week, depending on how the markets are moving. And again, this is Chad's analysis. I've been helping kind of fill in some of the gaps now as well, but our analysis is basically of where the markets are, where they're headed, you know, maybe some really specific signals such as buy and sell signals that we will issue. Those all get compiled into our broadcasts. And so pre-app, like I said, those were being sent to us via cell phone, post-app, or the reason for the app was to be able to do all of that stuff, to be able to send our signals and our text messages and our broadcasts, but do that in a better way so that folks could see what we were talking about when we talk about specific charts or patterns to be able to read some commentary and to be able to see videos or articles. And so the launch of the app really was to serve as a vehicle to deliver all of that content, everything that we're watching that moves the markets, and then a little extra with some of our news components. So Delaney, where do you get your information for your articles? Because I've had the app for a little bit now, and I look at your articles every now and then when I want to share some news with our listeners. So where do you guys get that information? So we do a lot of digging, just like you and I do for the podcast. We're watching the news wires pretty heavily day to day. We watch Bloomberg. We watch Reuters. We do a little digging ourselves. I've got a pretty big, quote unquote, Rolodex of contacts that I've developed here over the past couple of years. So we've got kind of our inside sources, you know, that we'll reach out to from time to time to ask about specific comments and patterns and trends. And I will say that this mobile app, we just launched it back in October. So it's still pretty new. We're still trying to figure out what works. Like I, I think I used this analogy earlier in the podcast today, Ashton, but we're still in the period where we're throwing you know, something to the wall to see what sticks. So we've still been playing around with the format, what kind of content we want to include, how frequently we want to include it. Um, but honestly, the part I love the most is that I get to step back in front of the camera and help be a voice for agriculture. And that's been the most fun part for me, at least in developing and launching this app. Well, I think that my favorite part of the app is getting to kind of customize your content because when I was signing up, I got to kind of select things that I was interested in and what I wanted to see. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and what, I guess, commodities people can choose from to see on their app? That is such a great question, Ashton. You're very insightful and I'm glad you asked that. And to be honest, we have not staged any of this. This is all just kind of a free-for-all interview today. But you're right. You We did really focus on user experience when we were developing the app. So Chad and I sat down with our web team and said, hey, 
here's what we do, but here's what we want this app to be able to do for our customers. So to answer your second question first, we basically cover any commodity market that is traded on the futures board, except the water futures market. I know that's a new one. We probably won't get into that one, but basically any futures commodity any energy, currency, metal, all of those we cover from time to time. Our primary focus is, of course, your big five when it comes to the grains, soybeans, corn, wheat, live cattle, feeder cattle, and hogs. We also talk quite a bit about the oil and ethanol market, and we talk a lot about the U.S. dollar. But really, any futures market we are trying to develop content for on the mobile app. So when anyone downloads our mobile app, which you can find it both in the Google Play and the Apple Store, just called Trader PhD, you can, as you're onboarding, basically set up your content preferences. So you'll get to a screen that says, well, there's a video first to help you walk through what you're about to do. But then once you get past that video screen, there'll be a a page that says select your content preferences or your product preferences. And that's where you can checkmark your boxes basically to tell us or tell the app what content you're most interested in following. So then when you get that set up, you log into your home screen on our main menu, there'll be a new posts button. Goal are, I've got the app open right now just to make sure I said it correctly, but there's a new posts button. And in there, it'll sort through based off of what you said you are interested in and what we assign articles or videos or content what tags we give them. If we give them a corn tag or a soybean tag or whatnot, that content will automatically filter when you get to the My Content button to show you, hey, here are the things you said you were interested in versus our other content button is basically anything else we're posting that maybe you have interest in reading periodically, but maybe it's not something that affects your operation day to day. Well, Delaney, I already know the answer to this question, but I want to make sure that our listeners know in case they want to go ahead and download this app. But does it cost anything to download this app or does it have any in-app purchases? Give us the the lowdown on that. Yes, great question. Obviously, one we should talk about. Um, You can download the app for free. You will get a 30-day free trial automatically with the app. Um, it'll notify me in the back end to say, hey, this new user has downloaded the app. They're brand new in our system. So you'll get 30 days for free to try us out. Usually our salespeople will extend that or sales rep ex- reps extend that because we want to make sure that you like the subscription, you like the service before you sign up. But from there, we do have a, usually we sell them in year-long subscriptions. So you'll be able to talk with your sales rep about pricing and whatnot, but Like I said, you'll get 30 days at least free to try everything out. And from there, you can kind of piece together what you like versus what you don't like with your dedicated sales rep. Well, Delaney, I think that I'm all out of questions. Is there anything else that you would like to add about the Trader PhD app? No, I'm really excited. I've been wanting to talk about it for a while, but I wanted to wait until I felt like it was up to snuff to share it with our listeners. So I'm really excited to have any of our listeners. I welcome you guys to download it, share your feedback with me. You can always message me on Twitter or Facebook, or you can message our Ag News Daily handle. Uh, Trader PhD is also on social media. So you can find us at Trader PhD on Facebook and Twitter and follow along with us. We don't do as good of a job posting, Ashton, as you do on the Ag News Daily Handles, but we still try to keep folks updated. But uh, like I said, I'm excited to have our listeners finally kind of be in the know with what I've been working on here over the past uh, about 
six, seven months now. So Ashton, this was a great idea. Thanks for thinking of it for today's Tech Tuesday episode. Oh, Delaney, you're you're making me blush over here. Oh, good. I like doing that, Ashton. <laughs> well, Delaney, for the folks who want to listen to any past or future Ag News Daily episodes, we're going to have a lot of great content in January of 2020. So folks, be sure to come back once the new year starts. And you can listen to any of those episodes on agnewsdaily.com. Or like Delaney said, you can reach out to us on social media at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let him go.